probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... James Stacy, writer-director. I'm based in Atlanta, and I'm a big fan of John Carpenter's The Thing. It's my favorite horror movie. Right on. Me too. I hope it's my favorite horror movie if I'm, I'm spending this much time talking about it. <laughs> I would hope so, too. Yeah. <laughs> So this minute, uh, minute 17 that we're talking about today, begins with the helicopter with uh, Dr. Copper and McCready flying by and ends with them getting out of the helicopter having just arrived at the smoldering Norwegian camp. So this one is uh, primarily got the, the helicopter kind of flying around, which is, uh, you know, I think you mentioned yesterday, it really does kind of give you a sense of how far away like the nearest camp is to them, the nearest other people. So it definitely kind of, you know, once again, kind of ups the isolation theme in the movie, right? Right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I love how it's all shot, too. Like, we don't see faces. We're focused mainly on the landscape and the helicopter. And then when they finally do land, um, we're pretty far back, like, through a window looking at them. And that creates kind of that whole paranoia of them being watched, which carries on the superstitious tone from the the last minute of just the paranoia building of there's something out there kind of stalking them and watching them. And though it's not at the camp currently, but it creates that feeling of dread that there's something waiting in there for them. Yeah, that's very true. I never really thought about that with these kind of helicopter shots. You know, aside from the one shot we get from inside the helicopter kind of over their shoulders, the first one we get is just this kind of wide pan across the landscape as the helicopter goes by, which definitely kind of gives you a sense of somebody kind of watching it go by. And, and obviously, you know, at the end of this minute, too, where we're looking through, we're seeing through the window as they get get out and, um, and walk in. And the fact that the camera even kind of follows them definitely gives that kind of almost slasher movie vibe that, you know, somebody's watching these characters uh, as they approach even if it isn't necessarily, you know, a perspective that we get the other get the other side of, it definitely builds that paranoia and that that sense of being watched, like you said. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it was kind of, I guess, mildly interesting to learn that uh, that well, that one shot of the inside of the helicopter is, um, you know, it's a bit of movie magic. It's a, a totally different helicopter because you know, looking at the one that they're in, there's no way they could have fit a camera person behind them, you know, and, and that whole crew, especially, you know, looking at the pictures from them filming the movie, the, the kind of cameras they were using and stuff, obviously at that time were gigantic. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so having that, you know, fit in that little bitty helicopter. So this other one uh, is a little bit bigger. So they had the room to kind of get behind them and get that shot, which, you know, is only, only a few seconds long, but it's one of those things that, you know, they wanted to establish, uh, I guess, who we're looking at here. So it's kind of, uh, I guess that's a good point to bring up that these guys definitely, their clothing does a good job of kind of differentiating the two of them. You definitely can't get these two guys mixed up, which I think I talked about earlier in some of the first 
moments of the movie when you first see the guys from the camp, they're all kind of wearing the same sort of like parkas and gloves and winter wear. So, you know, you could be forgiven for uh, for mixing them up. But here, Doc Copper's got his kind of general parka, but he's got these big goggles on. And then uh, McCready obviously has his uh, his signature gigantic hat. That, um, oh, that hat is so bitching. I want one. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you're a, you're a fan of the hat. I know. I, I am. <laughs> I think the first time I saw this movie, it was one of those things where early on, when I wasn't sure what to think about the movie yet, I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, <laughs> like that's a little distracting. This guy wears this, like, giant, like, comedically huge sombrero kind of hat. Like, it doesn't even seem like a winter hat necessarily. Uh, but I've definitely grown grown to love it. It's definitely a huge part of the the character of, of McCready and definitely gives him a, a different vibe than the rest of the, the crew. For sure. I think it's definitely the thing that whenever I show the thing to people, it's the hat I'll always gets a laugh just because it's so out of blue. It's one of those old movie things that could make or break your movie just completely unintentionally. At the time, I'm sure nobody really even noticed or thought that much about the hat but just with the way styles and everything change through the years suddenly it's it's a silly thing but everyone's like okay it's a big hat it's cool we'll take it <laughs> yeah you know like i said it's it's you know given now that the this movie's got such kind of a legacy it's definitely one of those kind of iconic character things you, it's hard to think about mccready without without seeing him in that hat mm-hmm. and it's funny to note too that you know, some of the first shots of the movie are are ones we haven't gotten to yet. Actually, when they're um, when they're flying out to visit the the UFO site, and in that case, uh, Kurt Russell had not been hired yet, so it's somebody else uh, stand in playing him. But that's where they established the hat. I guess uh, whoever was working in wardrobe and and John Carpenter, they decided that that hat was was the direction they wanted to go. So by the time Kurt Russell got on set, he had uh, he had no say in the matter. I think he he might have thought the hat was a little silly, but. You know, they had already established in in some other shots that, that that's what he wore when he goes outside. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's also instantly a main character piece of wardrobe too. You know that person's important. Very true. Because you're 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 immediately drawn to it. Yeah, it definitely sets him apart from the other guys who all wear pretty similar clothing most of the time. Uh, but his is just a, a whole different kind of style of outfit. He definitely looks looks different, and maybe that's one of the reasons they did it too. Because, you know, I think originally, just based on the script and, and some of the things I've read, the movie was originally intended to be more of like an ensemble cast. There wasn't really like one character in particular that was the protagonist. But I think they found that that was kind of, it was hard for audiences to latch on, especially when they, you know, the whole point of the movie is not knowing who's who. If you also don't have a, you know, a main character to really latch onto and and to uh, kind of follow, then, uh, you know, it was hard for people to really get invested in in caring about these people. So. Yeah, somebody to solve the mystery with, yeah. kind of. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, instead of just everybody kind of arguing about it, to have somebody to be your pers- the audience's perspective and, you know, providing direction for what's going on and, and, and for trying to figure things out actively. So, yeah, they made some changes in the movie, and I'm wondering if the hat was maybe one of those things that they were like, oh, that's, the, that's why. Like, we'll make that guy the main guy. <laughs> just because he already kind of stood out from the pack, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so the hat is the hat is wonderful, and yeah, I found out last week um, talking to uh, a great friend of the show, Todd Cameron, who runs uh, the Outpost Thirty One dot com, this insane fan site that just has a crazy amount of info about the movie. He found out that 
one of the, the helicopter pilots, his daughter actually is the one who owns the hat now because uh, Kurt Russell, she was hanging around on set a lot and Kurt Russell gave her the hat at the end of the shoot as a, uh, as a gift. So Aww. I know. So very nice thing Kurt Russell to do. And, and now she's got certainly one of the most prized, you know, props in horror movie history, which is pretty cool. Definitely. Definitely. Do you know how many of the, uh, like the puppets and the animatronics, how much those are still, like alive because I know a lot. Well, not alive, but still like in whole pieces because I know a lot of the stuff they made back in the day deteriorates so badly. Like there's like in Star Wars, there's nothing left of the job of the hot puppet other than the eyes and the mouth, just because everything that was made just falls apart. And it looks like a lot of the stuff from this was made to be all gooey and goopy and nasty looking. So I'd be amazed if there's anything still left of those. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I have I've. I haven't seen any pictures, so I would guess that you're probably. I was going to say that they're, you know, they're probably part of, of Rob Bottin's shop, you know, somewhere in his kind of personal museum. But you're probably right, based on especially the fact that these are all so wet and, um, you know, got so much, had so much kind of incidental damage done to them as part of the shooting. I'll bet you're right that they they're just probably gone, or just deteriorated to the point where they weren't even worth keeping for whoever had them. But um, yeah, because like like you said, the 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 Star Wars props. I don't know if you have you ever seen the pictures of like the um, the original Yoda puppet and what it looked like when they went to to get it to use for um, for the prequels. Yeah, it's kind of horrifying. <laughs> it is. It's really sad that how much of that history is just gone. Like even uh, stuff from the old original King Kong. I know Peter Jackson's managed to save parts of one of the original Kong puppets and some of the dinosaurs and stuff, but it's just not something people think to build to last forever. And you just got to try and save as much as you can, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess victim of circumstance too, in this movie that a lot of the the props really get kind of torn to pieces um, or or burned or, you know, destroyed in, in one way or another. So, um, yeah, it'd be it'd be really interesting to know. I haven't actually done a lot of research into that to find out if there are any those, those kind of props that are still around that uh, that anybody kind of owns as part of a collection. It'd be really that'd be something cool to uh, to see for sure. I'd you know obviously that that'd be a pretty amazing thing to own one of the creatures. Yeah, I'd love a Norris crabhead for sure. Yeah, so actually that's a good point to bring up. Would you would you say the Norris crabhead is your favorite version of the thing in this movie? Yeah, I think so, definitely. It's easily that scene, which um, if you need somebody to talk about those minutes, I'm all (laughs) for that because that is just so great. I love that scene, just how gory and intense it is. And Palmer, who just goes like, what the fuck? (laughs) And at that point, I think it's the most we've seen of the thing. So the audience has like that exact same reaction of what kind of movie are we sitting in on? And just seeing it break apart and become like a whole new creature, it's just, it's instantly, it's iconic. And I think it's what most people think of. Oh, yeah. Like a lot of them are more Cronenberg-esque of like different pieces and stuff. And then this one's almost like changing into its own self, its own new creature. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, most of them are just, are people, but with like, or, or you know, earlier in the movie of the dog, but just with extra kind of, creepy and gory parts added onto that basic form. But yeah, the Norris one is just like a whole different level of, of, of creature design. And it's like, 
and it's so many stages too between the 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 chest opening up and biting off the arms and then the 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 monstrous head that comes out of the out of the chest and you know craw- uh, flies up to the ceiling and then the head itself that pops off and grows legs you know it's just so many different that, that's where you really get to see like the the why, why this movie is so is still such an important movie in um in horror history and for special effects too really and it all holds up so well still yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, obviously done nowadays would probably be done with CGI that would look outdated in a year. But because they took the time to craft, you know, by hand these these creatures and to really work with finding the best way to make it look real with, you know, different materials and different lighting techniques and, and you know, all that, that uh, it definitely holds up. And, just you know, I don't think I've ever shown this movie to anybody and had them think that any of those like laugh at any of those creature scenes mm-hmm. because they don't come off as fake or silly at all there. And, you know, a lot, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into, into that aside from just the way the monsters look, there's the way it's cut and the lighting and uh, the sound design of the creatures. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's always, especially that scene is definitely one that just leaves people with their mouths wide open. It's not, it never, you know, people never find that as, you know, dated or funny. So. And it's so shocking too. Like it's just, it's great. Yeah. But we can talk about that minute when we get to that minute. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah. I can talk about that one for a good a good minute. For sure. Yeah. So, the, good good choice for uh, for best uh, best creature. I'm, I'm going to, I'm hopefully going to ask, uh, ask almost everybody that. And I, I have a feeling that one's going to probably come out on top. Let's see. I need flares, a parka, kerosene, dog food. Wow. Who knew moving to an Antarctic base would be so expensive? And I haven't even started looking for roller skates and giant hats yet. It's a good thing I'm using Amazon so I can get the best price and get this stuff fast. And since I'm using thethingminute.com slash Amazon, a small portion of my purchase goes to help The Thing Minute to help support the podcast. Now, if I can just get some of the listeners to use thethingminute.com slash Amazon, I might just be able to afford that flamethrower. One of the other things kind of interesting about this minute, too, is, uh, you know, as they arrive at the base, we see that kind of dark plume of smoke coming up and it was something that you know one of those things that in watching the movie you'd never really think about but reading up about it they had to really work hard to make that smoke visible because you know everything around it is so pure white so they had to make the blackest smoke possible and, and what they ended up doing was burning tires which <laughs> is something you know now they probably would not be able to do on a set now i think they'd get in trouble for doing that for oh yeah they get in so much trouble yeah for for one of many reasons i'm sure but yeah, that's how they ended up getting that kind of uh, that really dark, thick smoke that they they land in, and uh, and the other big thing too with this one is that the camp, the Norwegian camp that we're seeing, is actually the American camp after they've blown it up. So, yep. um, which is pretty cool. They, uh, you know, obviously towards the end of the movie, spo- spoiler alert for anybody <laughs> who's actually watching the movie one minute at a time and never seen it. The, uh, the, you know, the end of the movie, the the whole American camp outpost thirty one gets destroyed and blown up. So after they did that, I think they gave it a day or two, and then they they came back and shot these uh, this, the exteriors of the Norwegian camp. So they just shoot it from a different direction, so it's you can't really tell. But if you know that, looking at it, it's very obvious that it's the exact same kind of layout and everything. They just shoot it from a different side, so it's pretty pretty clever. Um, that's one of those I've been kind of mentioning them as we go. This is definitely one of those moments where you see. John Carpenter's kind of sense of an, it being an indie filmmaker really carrying over to his first Hollywood big budget movie that, you know, even when he's got this big budget, he's still very kind of crafty about working around ways to save money and, 
you know, it's probably one of the reasons why they were able to sink so much money into the special effects and everything is that they were able to save in other ways, like, like doing this. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Very, very smart filmmaking. Definitely on their parts. I love that. You you don't even think that that's a possibility. And it kind of works as like foreshadowing while still being like the actual thing, like this could happen to your guys' camp and it's actually their camp. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It's it's definitely not something I noticed, um, you know, the first couple of times I saw the movie, but you know, it definitely could function as one of those kind of subconscious things where obviously the whole point of this sequence that we're watching this week is that, you know, they're seeing what happened already to a camp that got infected with the thing and how disastrous and, and terrifying the, uh, the results are. And, you know, knowing what could possibly happen to them, but the fact that it actually is their camp and you're like literally seeing into their future in, in, in some ways. That's, that's a, that's a really interesting insight for sure. So one of the things we'd like to kind of mention on the show too, is to talk about the first time that you saw the movie. So do you have a, a memory of the first time you saw the thing? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I have a feeling it was one of those random just channel moments, channel surfing moments mm-hmm. where it was, probably edited for TV on like the sci-fi channel or something. And I didn't even know what I was watching at the time, but it's just one of those things that just sucked you in right away. And I just, Kurt Russell had been a fan of for a long, long time, ever since his old Disney movies, like the computer wore tennis shoes and stuff like that. <laughs> so that's probably what caught my attention was, Oh, Kurt Russell's in this. Oh, Kurt Russell is swearing. This is not the Kurt Russell. I know <laughs> he's saying bad words. <laughs> But I remember, I know it's definitely something like this. Like, I just couldn't stop watching. It just it just sucked you in. It was like this and like two other movies that I always remember as never intentionally watching to begin with. It was this, Con Air, and Speed Racer. <laughs> it just kind of randomly changed the channel and couldn't stop it. Just It just sucks you in and you can't, you can't look away. And... I don't think it gave me nightmares or anything or have made me stay up too late, but I know it creeped me the hell out, and it still does, just just because, like I've said in the previous minute, just atmosphere and characters and everything, and the effects are just fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting that a lot from people, that uh, seeing it on TV was the first first uh, medium for a lot of, lot of people, which is it, cool to see because that is kind of how this movie became the kind of cult classic that it is now you know it was a movie that did not do well at all and it came out and and got pretty poor reviews and everything um but you know over time through home video and and through tv um that's how it really kind of gained an audience and and became such an important movie as as we see it now so were you a were you a big horror fan when you were a kid you know i wasn't really Horror was not a genre that was pretty supported in my household. I came from like a pretty Christian family, so they didn't really appreciate a lot of that genre and mm-hmm. what that genre has to offer, especially the more gory stuff. So it was more action, suspense kind of things. Um, but a lot of the older movies is what I got to watch. So like Alfred Hitchcock horror, mm. the old Universal Monsters, that kind of horror which I think is honestly the best horror to start out on because you get to appreciate suspense and characters and just how old Hollywood used to work a lot more. And a lot of, like, my generation, I think, started out right on, like, Friday the 13th and stuff like that, which, I mean, there's those movies are things of their own, but I think if you start older horror and work your way up, you get to... You just get like so much more appreciation and a better understanding of 
what can scare people and what can't. But, you know, everybody's subjective. What scares one person doesn't scare the other. But it definitely molded my taste of what I like as far as horror is concerned and why I love the thing is because it's got a lot of that great old horror mixed in with the newer 80s gore stuff that was just starting out with all slasher flicks and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's, you know, maybe that's one of the uh, one of the issues that I'm sure we could talk forever about, you know, the problems with horror movies now, but is that, you know, a lot of these guys who have grown up to make horror movies now are people who really never didn't grow up seeing those kind of classics. They really started with, you know, the the late 80s or 90s horror movies, which are great. And there's, you know, there's definitely some really good stuff in there. And I, I think mm-hmm. 80s horror is probably my favorite kind of horror. But if you don't, you know, have an, a, um, an understanding of kind of the history of the medium and stuff, you know, you latch onto the tricks of the last, you know, 20, 30 years and, and don't get to kind of pick up on those, the things that really work about some of these classic movies. And, and that's definitely one of the things that makes the thing, one of the many things that makes the thing such a great movie is that um, on top of it being a very modern movie in terms of like, you know, over the top creature design and, you know, really smart writing and everything. It also relies really heavily on some of those kind of classic movie tropes and uses them in a really interesting new way to build that suspense, especially in this first half is very kind of old Hollywood horror. For sure. Definitely just switches over to the the more gore and gruesome of the eighties, but it's got that old, like I think this and um, the old original Nosferatu Mm -hmm. horror movie is, is something that still needs to be watched because that one was like what 1920s yeah 1910s that one's really old and that one can still if you love like just atmosphere horror and not so much gore it's still creepy just with the shadows and the dark and the makeup on uh the main monster is just incredible and you just don't see that as much anymore and i, and I really miss it yeah no I would, I would agree that's a fantastic movie and I think you could probably draw a lot of, you know, parallel lines between that and this, um, you know, like with yesterday's minute with the uh, the shadow on the wall. That's that's a very mm-hmm. kind of Nosferatu kind of moment. So, yeah, I, I think the only other thing I had specifically for this minute was to I wanted to mention the music is I think it's really interesting in that. You know, in any other movie, this shot would have been either silent with just uh, some, uh, you know, the helicopter noises. It, it probably would have been a lot shorter in most movies, too. Yeah. Yep. But the fact that instead of kind of, you know, a kind of action packed helicopter moment, we get uh, this the uneasy music from the last scene really carries over and you just get those kind of like prolonged woodwinds and stuff that just really makes that increases the sense of eeriness to it which is something you don't often get with like a helicopter like they've sucked all of the action out of this sequence and just made it very kind of creepy and and isolated which is really kind of cool and interesting yeah um cool so i think that will probably uh wrap us up for minute 17 Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention well since we were talking about old horror i guess Mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you have you seen the original thing from another world from 1951, I believe, that this was loosely based off of. Yeah, I, I have. Um, it's it's kind of funny because I the first time I saw that movie was at a a live like riff tracks event, like not with the actual you know branded riff tracks guys, but it was at a local comedy club in Atlanta that that used to do this on like Friday nights. Um, so it was a couple of local comedians kind of riffing over the movie. So my initial reaction to it was that it was just very silly and goofy because that was the context I saw it in. And then uh, I watched it uh, again just 
um, actually just a couple of weeks ago, I think only for the second time. And, and, you know, obviously it's very different from this and, right. and, and pretty different from the original source material, the, the short story too. But it's a, it's a pretty entertaining movie. It's, it's definitely, you know, in a way that this movie blends sci-fi and horror in such a perfect way, that movie blends horror and like, uh, what do you call them? Like the newspaper comedies, like the very kind of fast talking and, you know, very witty dialogue, you know, it combines those two things in a pretty interesting way that I, I hadn't really, I don't, I don't feel like I had seen before. Yeah, it's a great example of uh, 1950s sci-fi movies, just the black and white old giant ants from another planet type Mm -hmm. movies. And it's definitely not a scary movie. It's definitely more on the sillier side, just because that's that's the genre at the time. I'm sure people found it scary back in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. But it's an example of something that hasn't quite aged as well. But it's still, it's if you love the, the thing, then uh, I think it's worth watching. I think it's something that people should see just to see what John Carpenter took from that to carry over into his story, besides the, the title card being the same. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely some uh, some things we'll point out as we go along through the movie that are... Uh you know, direct references to the to the original movie. And that's, you know, th- this movie is more closely based on the short story, but it's obvious that John Carpenter, you know, based on things he said, he was a huge fan of the original movie. And that, w- that was one of the most influential things on him as a child. And, and the fact that he was, he was really scared watching that movie as a kid. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely some interesting lines you can draw between those two as well. And as we uh, go into the Norwegian base, we can talk about that other thing movie, Yes, most definitely. We'll we'll uh, we'll definitely be bringing that one up l- uh, later this week. I'd be interested to hear hear your thoughts on that, especially given that we've we've been kind of going uh, going back and forth a little bit on uh, on some modern horror, some of the problems and some of the some of the better better ones. Yeah, so I think we'll we'll wrap it up there, so we can get to that uh, Norwegian camp stuff tomorrow. So again, you can check us out on iTunes or at thethingminute.com and follow us on social media at the Thing Minute. You know, make sure to to get involved and you know post and talk with other listeners of the show and until tomorrow uh we'll be back for another episode of the thing minute thanks for listening if you enjoyed the show please go to thethingminute.com there you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on the thing you can also find us on twitter at the thing minute and on facebook at facebook.com slash the thing minute But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com, and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out. (laughs) 